Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? Well, today we have an episode all on border security. Well, specifically about the shutdown, the shutdown that's being happening over border security in uh, the U.S. And so what we have today is that we have different speeches. There's a speech that was given by Donald Trump. He asked the networks for primetime airtime to be able to give a speech from the Oval Office. And so we're really going to be breaking down Trump's speech, and we're also going to be breaking down the Democratic response, which is the response from Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. And they're going to be responding after Trump's speech. There's a lot of interesting things that happen here within these speeches, a lot of nuances and little techniques that some of them are new and some of them you've heard before, but not exactly in this context. So let's go ahead and take a listen and get into this first clip with uh, President Trump addressing the American people on primetime from the Oval Office. Let's take a listen here. But all Americans are hurt by uncontrolled illegal migration. It strains public resources and drives down jobs and wages. Among those hardest hit are African Americans and Hispanic Americans. Our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs, including meth, heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. Every week, 300 of our citizens are killed by heroin alone, 90% of which floods across from our southern border. More Americans will die from drugs this year than were killed in the entire Vietnam War. And what's interesting here is just to listen to his tone and the way that he sort of speaks his cadence. It's a lot more calm. It's a lot more, you know, rehearsed. He sounds as though this was very scripted and put together for him. It's really not the Trump rally uh, sort of rhetoric that we see from him. It's a lot more of the, the Trump attempting to be presidential. And I think he really pulls it off here. Um, I just don't know if it like actually works to speaking to his base. Yeah, he has that monotone voice throughout the whole speech. He's really emphasizing certain points, certain aspects of the things he's saying, which are the things that he would strongly emphasize at his rallies, for example, or when talking to his base. But really, he's trying to, you know, as Alex said, try to pull off this whole presidential thing. But it's amazing how even as this is scripted, he can't get away from being him, right? He can't get away from being who he actually is and sounding the way he actually, you know, sounds. You know, I just thought it was interesting here. And this is the first time he mentions, you know, African and Hispanic Americans. 
he says, you know, African and Hispanic Americans are the hardest hit. And then his very next sentence, he starts talking about drugs. Okay, like this is how they're (laughs) hit. They're hit by drugs because we've got this drug crisis and people are taking all these drugs. And, you know, who is he talking about? Is he saying that the only people who do drugs are African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans? Like, it kind of sounded to me like that's what he was saying. Um, because he didn't say any other way in which they were actually, you know, impacted by this. And it's it's just, uh, it's interesting how he couldn't really, you know, get away from, from that aspect of it. He sort of ties them together just by, like, just by correlating them, just by putting them together in the same, you know, couple of sentences like he's clearly that's the connection that he's trying to make and that his speech writers are making. Yeah, absolutely. So in this next clip, we're really going to hear him starting off his very emotionalized appeals. Okay. Talking about how this shutdown is hurting people. Yes. He's going to be talking about that later on, but specifically how people are being hurt by the border being open in his mind. And he's really going to be using different figures. He's going to be saying things in this very emotionalized way. And, you know, clearly this is, you know, being written, of course, uh, by his speechwriters. But really just listen to the way he says this. Now, as this was being aired, I was actually watching it on kind of a group uh, television set. And, uh, you know, I saw some other people who I actually didn't know watching the same you know, broadcast. And I was looking at them and I'm, I'm watching in amazement as they watch this segment of the, of the, of the speech. And they were actually completely bought in to exactly what he was saying. And there was one moment here, which I'm really going to emphasize a little bit later on where I couldn't believe they, they actually uh, believed this thing, but let's take a listen to this next clip where he really starts to get into that emotional side of things. In the last two years, ICE officers made 266,000 arrests of aliens with criminal records, including those charged or convicted of 100,000 assaults, 30,000 sex crimes, and 4,000 violent killings. Over the years, thousands of Americans have been brutally killed by those who illegally entered our country and thousands more lives will be lost if we don't act right now. This is a humanitarian crisis, a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul. Last month, 20,000 migrant children were illegally brought into the United States, a dramatic increase. These children are used as human pawns by vicious coyotes and ruthless gangs. One in three women are sexually assaulted on the dangerous trek up through Mexico. Women or children are the biggest victims, by far, of our broken system. This is the tragic reality of illegal immigration on our southern border. This is the cycle of human suffering that I am determined to end. So what we see right here is really charged language. The big thing that stands out to me in this entire thing right here is the way that he sort of combines, the, you know, the words. And he's using, you know, really, really strong adjectives. Broken system. Tragic reality. Criminal gangs. These are the things that you'll see throughout the entire speech here is that he just sort of attaches these descriptors onto these words to sort of add that extra charge and to spin it in his way. 
And if you if you listen right here, the thing that really stood out to me too is this: if we don't act right now to stop this, um, that's the big thing right now. Is he's trying to emphasize the urgency of action to sort of combat the uh, broken system, tragic reality, and criminal gangs. Yeah, children are being used as human pawns by vicious coyotes. What? And ruthless gangs. What, what does that mean? Vicious coyotes. They're being used as human pawns. You know, what is exactly he, what is he saying here? I don't know what he's saying here, but it sounds good you know it sounds emotional it sounds the type of thing that really kind of makes his point on an emotional level and you know this was the part where i was watching it and i just couldn't believe he said this you know this is a humanitarian crisis it's a crisis of the heart it's a crisis of the <laughs> soul and he says it in the most soulless way possible you know does anyone really believe that you know that this guy actually cares about people's hearts and souls he doesn't add any emotion there's no emotion it's like okay i'm gonna talk to you about the soul without being you know a, without <laughs> embodying that word of, of a soul and uh you know how do you do that and have it come across authentic well this is this is the part um you know where we say okay does his base buy this i think they do I think they actually listen to this and they go, oh, he's never been so presidential. Finally, he's being the president that we always wanted. And they gloss over and they ignore the fact that he's completely incongruent, that his manner in which he's speaking is actually not matching the words that he has coming out of his mouth. Right. Yeah. I think the fact that it's such a big change from his normal demeanor and his normal way of speaking uh, for them, it it's it's a turn on for people who thought that you know oh he he's not very presidential he's not very you know formal this was a way for him to sort of redeem himself in their eyes and so then they're turned on by that and they're you know they're paying a little bit closer attention like oh my god yeah this time he's serious this time he's actually like portraying something but they they gloss over that incongruency that you brought up yeah they just absolutely say okay this is what i'm looking for i'm looking for him to be serious but he doesn't do presidential well that's that's what we have to understand he's trying to do it but he doesn't do it super well but again it's to what degree are people actually hearing the communication and hearing it at that subtle of a level um, i think a lot of people don't hear it you know they hear the words and then they go off in their own mind and they said oh i get it. it is a crisis of the heart and a crisis of the soul um but in what way, in what way is that actually happening? This cycle of human suffering that he's, you know, talking about. What is that cycle? Okay, what, what are we, where are the specifics? And he's going to be, you know, he's going to get into the facts and get into the figures and get into the specifics. But of course, those specifics are later going to be fact-checked to, you know, not be exactly correct. Um, but let's go ahead and listen to some more of this where he's really talking about some of his terms of how he's describing this and uh, some some more ways in which he's getting into it. In particular, one catchphrase that he keeps using as he's been describing this in all of his media appearances. We have requested more agents, immigration judges and bed space to process the sharp rise in unlawful migration fueled by our very strong economy. Our plan also contains an urgent request for humanitarian assistance and medical support. 
Furthermore, we have asked Congress to close border security loopholes so that illegal immigrant children can be safely and humanely returned back home. Finally, as part of an overall approach to border security, law enforcement professionals have requested $5.7 billion for a physical barrier. At the request of Democrats, it will be a steel barrier rather than a concrete wall. This barrier is absolutely critical to border security. It's also what our professionals at the border want and need. And here, I love how he really like uh, shirks responsibility for all of these ideas. He really puts it on to other people. We hear all of these references to law enforcement officials and you know people uh, at the border, and the Democrats want this. And it's really it, it it's really fascinating the way that a lot of these things are his ideas, but he's framing them as though they are requested by other people or uh, or, or the idea of someone else that is just being denied by the evil Democrats. Yeah, there's a lot of deletion that's going on here. So when he says at the request of Democrats, it would be a steel barrier, not a concrete one. You know, Democrats might have brought up that they didn't want a concrete barrier, but he's deleting the fact that they didn't want the barrier at all. You know, he he, he actually <laughs> just takes it, you know, completely out. And he says, well, at the request of them, we're going to make it this way. And he just completely deletes out of his speech the fact that they didn't ask for that. Um, but of course, factual you know, basis of this doesn't really matter as he's giving this Oval Office presentation in primetime TV. And so he frames it as though the Democrats are the ones asking for the wall. Now, the other thing that we hear here is that he's talking about and he's linking things together in this cause effect. So we have requested, and he has that very breathy voice, to process the sharp rise of illegal migration. Now, this is what he keeps saying as he's talking about this illegal migration. It's not illegal immigration. It's illegal migration. So this is one of those words that calls back to the conservative type of television or the conservative radios. They're talking about it, right? The migrant caravan. So that's what he's talking about. So it's not immigration. It's migration. And when he calls it migration, well, then it's they migrate this way, they migrate back. He's not suggesting that they're actually going to stay here. They're just migrating. Okay. And when he uses that word, it, of course, frames it in a much different way. And so he says, because of this sharp rise of uh, Ill illegal migration, and then he continues, fueled by our very strong economy. So right there, he creates a cause and effect. Our very strong economy creates illegal migration, as he says. That's how this whole thing works. We have a strong economy. It's illegal migration. That one causes the other. And, of course, it could really be argued, you know, is that actually, you know, going to happen? And then he, he continues with his cause effect. And I've requested to close the border security loopholes. Okay, we can talk about tax loopholes later, but we're going to close the border security loopholes so that the illegal immigrant children can be safely and humanely returned back home. Well, what does one thing have to do with the other? What does a border security loophole have to do with the children going back home? And why does he make such a big deal about them being safely and humanely returned back? Well, 
Why that is is because, of course, we know about the controversies of the kids dying in the custody of uh, border and protection officers. Right. We've, we've heard, but you know, what's that. funny here is that like he's talking about them being returned safely back home. It's not like they're being returned safely to like their parents arms. <laughs> they're being returned back to some country where their parents may be somewhere completely like else. Right. Uh, so I find that interesting. The way that he sort of frames this whole thing as this humanitarian disaster where, you know, there are people just like dying in the fields and, and, and like swarms of humans coming across the border. He's really trying to play up the idea that there's just this disaster that requires immediate assistance and that the Democrats just don't see this problem when, you know, I think in reality, we end up with a a very different situation, but but it's not with without it being uh, attached to so much charged language. It's hard to see him actually making a convincing case. So it's easy to see exactly why he's doing this. Yeah, and to make it so so very emotional. Now we're going to be hearing in this next part, this next segment, he's going to be talking about. Well, who's going to pay for the wall? He's going to be telling us who's going to pay for the wall. And you know what? The answer is actually that Mexico is going to pay for it. Amazingly so. Um, you didn't you know, know that, but he actually explains how that's going to happen in this next clip. So let's take a listen. The border wall would very quickly pay for itself. The cost of illegal drugs exceeds $500 billion a year. Vastly more than the $5.7 billion we have requested from Congress. The wall will also be paid for indirectly by the great new trade deal we have made with Mexico. Senator Chuck Schumer, who you will be hearing from later tonight, has repeatedly supported a physical barrier in the past, along with many other Democrats. They changed their mind only after I was elected president. Democrats in Congress have refused to acknowledge the crisis. And they have refused to provide our brave border agents with the tools they desperately need to protect our families and our nation. The federal government remains shut down for one reason and one reason only, because Democrats will not fund border security wow one reason and one reason at all because democrats won't fund border security it's really interesting how he how he phrases that and really spins it to where you know there are a hundred different reasons here why the government isn't opening and the democrats have you know passed legislation to open the government but what he's doing is he's sort of pushing the blame of not opening the government onto Democrats because they won't fund the wall that he wants. And so he's saying that that border security means giving him his wall when those two might not necessarily be the same. And it's not necessarily the reason why the government's not opening. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is something that Trump does really well is that he's really good at preempting what someone is going to say. So we hear him saying, you know, Senator Chuck Schumer, who you will hear from later tonight, okay? And then he proceeds to talk about how Schumer always supported the wall, okay? That the Democrats always supported the wall until he liked it, 
Okay, so this this has been his line that he's talking about for quite some time. He says basically the only reason to oppose it is personal and not actually a policy decision. And what he's doing is that he's making it so that people will hear Chuck Schumer's speech through the um, through the lens or through the filter of all of what he's about to say, which is, hey, Schumer, you know, likes the wall. He's just basically saying it because he doesn't like me. In other words, he's a liar. In other words, he's inauthentic. And so he's creating this very easy correlation for a person to follow of, well, if you want someone to blame for the shutdown, it's the Democrats. The only person to blame for the shutdown is the Democrats. It couldn't be that the Democrats have any sort of case Um, But it's just their fault because they won't fund border security. And so what he's saying is for anyone who has that as a value, for anyone who that's important, you know, and he does a really good job of tapping into that fear. You know, the illegal immigrants are coming into our country. They are creating all sorts of bad things that are happening. And when they come here, they do bad things. And Democrats are the ones who are making it so that they're coming here to do bad things. Therefore, Democrats are making it hard for you to you know, rest safely at night. He has this whole thing in which he's he's spinning. Now, he did talk about, you know, who was going to pay for the wall and, you know, this type of thing. And really, he's saying it's going to pay for itself. How? By stopping illegal drugs. Okay. And by a great new trade deal that's, you know, <laughs> being made. And, you know, of course, we have to remember a lot of drugs come in through, you know, uh, ports of entry, right? They come in, you know, hidden in car tires. They come in through airplanes. You know, people come in, you know, the same way. And so not all of it is, you know, some guy basically like holding a knapsack full of cocaine and, you know, under the under the depth of night trying to sneak across the border <laughs> and then meeting his friend, you know, meeting his friend Beto on the other side and handing him the sack <laughs> and then going. So, you know, not all of it is stuff like that. Um, you know, it actually does happen a different way, but he, he doesn't talk about that. Now, the next one is one that I really love. This next clip is him trying to make this whole situation a lot more relatable by, by sort of bringing up some things that aren't very relatable at all. But uh, we'll let you be the judge of that. Let's listen to um, this next clip here. Some have suggested a barrier is immoral then why do wealthy politicians build walls, fences, and gates around their homes? They don't build walls because they hate the people on the outside, but because they love the people on the inside. The only thing that is immoral is the politicians to do nothing and continue to allow more innocent people to be so horribly victimized. America's heart broke the day after Christmas, when a young police officer in California was savagely murdered in cold blood by an illegal alien who just came across the border. The life of an American hero was stolen by someone who had no right to be in our country. Day after day, precious lives are cut short by those who have violated our borders. In California, an Air Force veteran was raped murdered and beaten to death with a hammer by an illegal alien with a long criminal history. In Georgia, an illegal alien was recently charged with murder for killing, beheading, and dismembering his neighbor. 
in Maryland, MS-13 gang members who arrived in the United States as unaccompanied minors were arrested and charged last year after viciously stabbing and beating a 16-year-old girl. Okay, there's a lot to break down here. I think the first thing here is when he talks about, you know, why do wealthy people build walls around their homes? It's not because they hate the people on the outside. It's because they love the people on the inside. This is like a Barney movie. It's just, (laughs) you know, it has all the characteristics. It's like, first off, who can relate to this? (laughs) <laughs> building walls around your home right and then b like is that really the motivation here yeah and I, I just find it hard to believe that people would would buy into the fact that trump actually wrote this speech you know this is obviously a speech writer who wrote this because trump doesn't speak this way this is not the way he actually talks uh, he doesn't use that type of language and he definitely doesn't talk about love you know it's that whole thing that we were talking about with the um, Ted Cruz and Beto work race, you know, that whole love, 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 love. You know, Ted Cruz doesn't use the word love. Donald Trump doesn't use the word love. So when they use it, you know that they have actually rehearsed that type of thing and, uh, you know, put it in there as, as in particular for a persuasive, you know, type of message. But he does have that that sense of very... Um, making it very vague and ambiguous. So some people have suggested, right? Now that's very open-ended. Who exactly are these people? You know, it, this is his classic people are saying, right? People are saying this, people are saying that. Some people have suggested that. And then, you know, we've talked about this, that Donald Trump does this before. He goes on this narrative of something that happened to him. And he'll talk about, I met a guy down, you know, there. And this guy was telling me that, this, this, that. And then what he said was, now that's not true. And so that's called extended quotes. So it's where you're quoting someone else, but you continue the quote and you continue to talk as though they said it, but they didn't really say that. And so when he's saying some people have suggested the wall is immoral, he's framing a particular issue and he's putting it into a box and he's saying, hey, that's over there. How I would respond to it is this. And then he gives himself an opportunity to respond to something that might never have really been said or wasn't said in the way in which he actually quoted it. Yeah. And he also does a lot of sort of projecting in sort of a a royal sense here. He says America's heart broke when an American hero was killed. And then he goes into this sort of list of like various tragic events that were committed by you know, uh, presumably illegal, illegal immigrants that, you know, he is, this is the the presumption here, but he's not citing anything specifically. He's just saying that these things happened and we are to believe that they were all true and factually correct. And then that also builds upon the assumption that uh, crime doesn't happen with any group of people uh, at any higher or lower rate, regardless of who they are, where they come from. And so it's just, it's really interesting here how he builds it in such an emotional sense. Um, and it's just vague enough to allow, um, you know, your imagination sort of paint the scenario and, uh, it really drives up the, um, you know, the, the heartbreak of it all. It's all very storybook, right? So when he's talking about America's heart broke the day after Christmas, 
there's a personification there. First of all, America doesn't have a heart. A heart is an organ, you know, I'm sorry to say. But when we say America's heart broke, you know, whose heart specifically was that? Who exactly are we talking about uh, when the life of an American hero was stolen? So this is so very, you know, this is like a headline that you would read or this is something that you would read in a very fictionalized uh, kind of novel where we would be talking in these very big terms. It's very literary. It is something that, as he describes it, it sounds like he's being specific, but really he's talking about an archetype. He's talking about something metaphorical. He's not just talking about this one thing happened because, hey, honestly, that would be boring. You know, you hear about that all the time. Hey, this person, you know, got murdered. That person got shot and killed. But America's heart broke. You know, a hero, the life of an American hero was stolen. That type of language causes it to perk up and pay attention because it has a story arc. Because this is a way of saying, hey, these people have done so much for our country and this is what, you know, has happened. And then he gets to point the finger. And we hear him say this type of language. It's very repetitive. Day after day, precious lives are cut short. You know, wow, like what is he what is he saying here? Whose lives are they? How are they being cut short? And so he's going into this super detail in order to elicit the strongest emotional response. So the person wasn't just killed, but they were also beheaded. They were also stabbed. They were also this. They were also that. He goes into that to really break it down blow by blow by blow. And I was as I was listening to this, I was really reminded to that moment on the debate stage with Hillary Clinton, where he was talking about, you know, Donald Trump was talking about Bill Clinton, okay, of course, and his affair. And, you know, uh, Trump went into that whole thing about, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was impeached. He lost his license to practice law. He had to pay, you know, $850,000 to Paula Jones. You know, he, he had to do this. He had to do that. And he was so prepared with this in detail type of list now, of course, he had that prepared completely ahead of time, but the way he says it was so attacking and so emotionally bringing up that emotion right up to the surface, this isn't usually the way he talks. And so this is how we know that this is such a rehearsed speech. Well, of course it is because it's given on television and Oval Office and everything like that. But this especially lets us know that this is not authentic Trump because he just doesn't do this in his everyday normal way of speaking. And so now the next clip is really where he continues a little bit more of that, but draws it to a conclusion. And so we'll hear um, exactly how he tries to end this. Over the last several years, I've met with dozens of families whose loved ones were stolen by illegal immigration. I've held the hands of the weeping mothers and embraced the grief-stricken fathers. So sad, so terrible. I will never forget the pain in their eyes, the tremble in their voices, and the sadness gripping their souls. How much more American blood must we shed before Congress does its job? To those who refuse to compromise in the name of border security, I would ask, imagine if it was your child, your husband, or your wife whose life was so cruelly shattered and totally broken. To every member 
of Congress pass a bill that ends this crisis. To every citizen, call Congress and tell them to finally, after all of these decades, secure our border. This is a choice between right and wrong, justice and injustice. This is about whether we fulfill our sacred duty to the American citizens we serve. When I took the oath of office, I swore to protect our country. And that is what I will always do. So help me God. Thank you and good night. Wow. And he really gets in here to this conclusion where, well, it definitely stirs up a lot of that emotion. Uh, I don't know, again, how authentic it actually is. You know, it's it's kind of like, okay, give me a break, right? So sad. So <laughs> terrible. I will never... He says this as though he's just reading words off of a page. I will never forget the pain in their eyes, the tremble in their voices, the sadness in their souls. Like... <laughs> Yeah, you will. You already did. You never remembered it in the first place, you know? So he, he says it in this way, but wow, the, the the words are so good, you know, in, in being able to evoke that emotion that he might not need to say it, you know, that, that authentically. And then he goes into, you know, to every member of Congress, pass the bill to every citizen, call Congress and tell them to do this. So again, Congress needs to act, not me. When they give me my thing, I'm going to sign it. Congress needs to act. They need to do it. And then he goes into this choice, this choice between right and wrong. Now, if you think about it, there's really two types of people in the world. I'm about to do a Trumpian thing. There, there's two types <laughs> of people in the world. You know, there are those who are absolutists and there are those who are more relativists. So there are those people who really believe in an absolute right and wrong. There are people who more or less see the world in black and white terms. Okay. They say, hey, there's this value. There is right or there's wrong. There's really no, no in between. Some things are truly right. Some things are clearly right. Some things are clearly wrong. And it doesn't matter how you frame it. It doesn't matter how you shade it. This is right. That's wrong. Period. End of story. And then there's people who are relativists who kind of look at it and they can, you know, look look in between. I'm grossly simplifying it here, but that's basically the idea. And so we we hear him here appealing to that very black and white nature of thinking of this right and this wrong, the justice and injustice. And so he paints this, which side are you on? It's either this or it's that. And clearly, of course, which side is he on? Well, he's on the side of justice because he took, took an oath to protect our country. Now, of course, the interesting thing here is how specifically does he protect the country? What does protecting the country actually mean? You know, couldn't someone make an argument that protecting the country, you know, might mean, for example, paying TSA workers in order to, you know, screen people going through airports, you know, might that be an important consideration? Yeah. One thing that really stood out to me here too, is when he gets into the, that imagery there, imagine if this was your child, your husband, your wife, whose life was so cruelly shattered and totally broken. Trump really does this weird thing where you ever notice when he's talking about something and he gets to a word and he doesn't quite land it properly, he then comes up with like a synonym or like another phrase right. that sounds kind of the same, but is like a little bit more, uh, 
this is one of those moments where he doesn't quite land that that phrase whose life was so cruelly shattered and then he just uh, you can tell he's going off teleprompter and then he adds uh and totally broken totally broken as if shattered wasn't a good enough descriptor (laughs) right yeah not just shattered but broken not just murdered but stabbed okay not just killed but beheaded um, but no, yeah, so he also lays a lot of this blame here, too, that, again, it's the members of Congress that won't pass the bill to end this Congress, that uh, they won't vote in favor of border security. Again, he's t- trying to tie all of this back to border security. I think that it doesn't land quite as well as he thinks it, it does, because, you know, he's coming off very incongruent. He's not actually embodying any of this language. It, it all seems so inauthentic because we've seen him at his rallies. We've seen him giving these speeches off the cuff and they're very different. And that's what excites his base. And that's what gets people to believe that he's speaking from the heart. But in here, I think people can see that it's very canned. And so it's not coming off properly. And, and I think that's maybe why we haven't seen any sort of bump in, in, in his favor since this. Yeah, he does sound very canned, but the one thing he has going for him is that it's a really well-written speech. You know, there are parts of it that just clearly aren't meant for him, but I guess they kind of had to say it. You know, there are some parts at the beginning, like as they, you know, related the, um, you know, the African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans to drugs. You know, that probably was just an error in speech writing type of thing. Um, but it's still mostly a fairly well-written speech in terms of how he's evoking the emotion and getting it up and directing the attention where he wants for it to go for his purposes, you know, and for perhaps his base of the people who might be convinced. Well, fairly well-written. We could talk about the delivery. Well, their delivery is good, you know, probably not that great, uh, really, but it was a well-written speech. Up next, though, we're going to be talking about the response, the Democratic response by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. And, you know, I got to say, I don't think they really did it that much more authentically. Um, there are definitely some moments here where it's clearly inauthentic. You know, the way in which it comes across, it's totally rehearsed. They were going to say what they were going to say, no matter what Trump actually said. And, um, you know, they basically keep repeating the same thing. And, you know, it doesn't come across, you know, that much more, you know, that way. But there are some language aspects to this. There are some rhetorical devices that we're going to break down and really talk about why did they say some things and why don't they, you know, communicate other things. Now, before we get to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, I want to take a minute here to talk about Patreon and how you can support us. Now, as you know, podcasts aren't free. There are a lot of server costs, a lot of time that we spend out of our busy days. You know, Taylor and I are booking appointments and seeing clients all day long. And one way that you can support us and support the time that we take out of our day is to go onto Patreon and for as little as three bucks just to buy us a cup of coffee, you can donate to help support this show. You can go all the way up to donating even more if the show is worth it to you, which, you know, of course it is. And you'll be able to show your support and really be able to give us what we need to continue serving this episode up to you week after week. So take a moment here, head on over to Patreon, search for Subliminally Correct. You can also find the link in the show notes or on our website and get straight there, subliminallycorrect.com. 
And thank you. And now let's get over to the second half of the show. Go ahead and take a listen to this first part of this speech. And this is the part where Nancy Pelosi is talking. And uh, we're going to go ahead and hear what she has to say. Appreciate the opportunity to speak directly to the American people tonight about how we can end this shutdown and meet the needs of the American people. Sadly, much of what we heard from President Trump throughout this sense of shutdown has been full of misinformation and even malice. The president has chosen fear. We want to start with the facts. The fact is, on the very first day of this Congress, House Democrats passed Senate Republican legislation to reopen government and fund smart, effective border security solutions. But the president is rejecting these bipartisan bills which would reopen government over his obsession with forcing American taxpayers to waste billions of dollars on an expensive and ineffective wall, a wall he always promised Mexico would pay for. The fact is, President Trump has chosen to hold hostage critical services for the health, safety, and well-being of the American people and withhold the paychecks of 800,000 innocent workers across the nation, many of them veterans. He promised to keep government shut down for months or years, no matter whom it hurts. That's just plain wrong. The fact is, we all agree we need to secure our borders while honoring our values. We can build the infrastructure and roads at our ports of entry. We can install new technology to scan cars and trucks for drugs coming into our nation. We can hire the personnel we need to facilitate trade and immigration at the border. We can fund more innovation to detect unauthorized crossings. The fact is, the women and children at the border are not a security threat. They are a humanitarian challenge, a challenge that President Trump's own cruel and counterproductive policies have only deepened. And the fact is, President Trump must stop holding the American people hostage, must stop manufacturing a crisis, and must reopen the government. So right here we hear Nancy Pelosi really starting off with this sort of brilliant tactic here. She has this cadence where she says, Trump says this, fact is this. Trump says this, truth is that. Fact, Trump says this, fact is this. And she sort of goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth where it really, you know, emphasizes, A, you've got her framing of Trump stuff. So she adds a little bit of spin to it that, you know, Trump is, is you know, saying this, that, and that, fueled by malice, fueled by this, you know, causing this disaster. Fact is, all of these other things that are positive and make this, you know, situation not as bad as it actually seems. And so it's really, it's really interesting here how she takes the spin, but adds sort of that weight by prefacing everything with fact is. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting language pattern that she continues to do. And we hear that as repetition, right? That as she says, the fact is, that means that she's the one who's actually telling the truth. And I think that as she's describing it, she's really trying to appeal to the better side of people's nature. She's trying to make it purposefully 
less emotional. It's almost as though she's talking to a less emotional crowd. So what you'll notice is she has the same spacing between her words for the most part. She just continues to say things exactly the same um, in the same almost monotone, you know, much more, much less emotionally driven than Trump's speech. Even though Trump is trying to be presidential and all of that, she's even more so. And so she is really not putting very much emotion into the way in which she's speaking. The problem, of course, is, is that people are emotional. And, you know, I think that as she's she's doing that, she is going to have a lot of people's um, higher thinking centers agreeing with her. The question is, what are those other thinking centers doing? What is the rest of a person's brain doing as they're hearing something like that? You know, are they actually as appealed at an emotional level as they are at a logical level. And, you know, I think it kind of depends on the person. And probably if I were to say, you know, who is she appealing to? Probably more of the Democratic base. I don't think she's really going to be reaching across the aisle too much to really, you know, talk about, uh, talk to people who are on the other side or, you know, even talking to people who might not necessarily agree with her or who have that more, um, hey, I'm just going to do what's right for me type of mentality. I think that she's just kind of appealing at this higher level uh, to people's sense of this is what the fact is and this is not what the fact is. Um, does it work? Well, I think we will you know, play it through. But I, I would say that her persuasion in terms of you know, language is very good. I'm not too much of a fan personally of the way in which she does it with her voice tone. I think that it, uh, it's, it's a little bit too dry you know, for me personally. Right. And so we'll hear the same sort of thing from Chuck Schumer, whom she'll introduce. He does the same thing. This is very much, I like to think of it as like, it's like your parents lecturing you <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, the, the principal trying to like scold you. Both of them come off as, you know, very avuncular, very dodgy old people right. trying to explain, you know, what is actually true and how, you know, all the, you know, crazy people are all wrong. And, you know, while, you know, who knows if they're actually right or wrong. In fact, uh, the thing is, is that how does it come across on an emotional level? Uh, maybe just as bad as, as sort of Trump came across. So let's hear what, what uh, Chuck Schumer has to say here. Leader Schumer. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. My fellow Americans, we address you tonight for one reason only. The President of the United States having failed to get Mexico to pay for his ineffective, unnecessary border wall, and unable to convince the Congress or the American people to foot the bill, has shut down the government. American democracy doesn't work that way. We don't govern by temper tantrum. No president should pound the table and demand he gets his way, or else the government shuts down, hurting millions of Americans who are treated as leverage. Tonight, and throughout this debate and throughout his presidency, President Trump has appealed to fear, not facts, division, not unity. Yeah, Schumer here is carrying on sort of that disappointed parents language here is, you know, Trump failed to get Mexico to pay. <clears throat> Trump failed to get Mexico to pay and failed to convince Congress or the people to pay. So he shut down the government. And it's sort of that that, oh, you, you know, you. You really, you know, you couldn't do this. You couldn't do that. You couldn't do the other thing. So you behaved badly. And that's wrong. 
And, you know, I just don't know how well people digest that. It is very much a, okay, Trump is going to detention sort of thing, except what can he actually do? You know, he's, he's again, giving his framing of it, right? We heard Trump. Trump gave completely, hey, this is all the Democrats' fault. If only you do this, then the whole thing's going to be solved. This could be solved in 45 minutes. Um, the only reason it's not being solved is, is you. And then, of course, Schumer comes in here and says, well, there's only one reason we're here. He couldn't get Mexico to pay. And that, that of course, is you know saying, hey, he doesn't really keep his campaign promises because that was something that Trump said again and again. You know, he couldn't convince Congress or the people to pay. Now, what does that mean, or the people to pay? Which people are there other than Congress, really? And so he shut down the government. You know, he makes it very clear here, Trump shut down the government. It wasn't that anyone else did it. It was that Trump did it by virtue of not you know, passing the bills. But you could also say it's a virtue of, you know, Congress not actually putting legislation in front of him that he could pass. So, you know, where does the blame actually go? Well, you know, who, who knows? Um, but I like this part here where he says American democracy doesn't work that way. Well, clearly it does. <laughs> right. Clearly it does, because that's what we're in right now. Um but this is, you know, him saying and, and, you know, it's just like Alex is saying, this is him having this kind of ideal of like, well, this is the way the schoolhouse rules are supposed to go. This is the way that I think American democracy should work. And not in my house. Yeah, and so it doesn't work this way, Trump. Um, but it kind of does, because obviously he's getting away with it. And we have this shutdown that's continuing on, you know, so much. You know, we don't govern by temper tantrum and pound the table. He's making Trump to be basically like a little spoiled kid who's just throwing a temper tantrum, not getting his way. And yes, yeah, so it is very parental. Um, but we hear here again, you know, I like the, the part here at the beginning, right, where he's, you know, Leader Schumer, thank you, Speaker Pelosi. I mean, so rehearsed, so self-congratulatory. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's 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 difficult to stomach, you know, that right there. He just starts it off horribly. It's like they sort of have to do it, too, right? It's, it's almost as if they both prepared separate speeches and they have to share the time because that's what they agreed to in order to, like, share the spotlight. Right. But just saying the titles like that, you know, it's not enough to just be like, hey, Chuck, it's your turn. No. Leader Schumer? <laughs> like, what does that mean, Leader Schumer? It's like he's in a, in a church leadership or something. You know, Leader Schumer? Here you go, Chucky. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. Like, they have to, you know, maintain this appearance for themselves to give themselves that pat on the back to say, hey, you're important. You're important. I know that the president just got, you know, twice as much time of you in front of primetime television, but you're important, too. Or actually, more time because they, they had to split theirs. Um and then we hear at the end there uh, th this thematic messaging, Fa fear, not facts, division, not unity. Who says things like that? Well, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, many, many, many Democrats have talked about this. This is in so many Democratic speeches in which they make these black and white type of distinctions. This, not that. So, so words like unity. That's a very Democratic type of thing. You don't oftentimes hear Republicans talking about unity. You also don't hear uh, Republicans talking about facts versus fear. So this is very much on party messaging in what she's doing here. Now, in this next clip here, uh, we're really going to be listening to uh, Chuck Schumer really talk about 
some cause and effects that he's doing, being able to link different things together, and again, continuing to shame Trump. So let's listen to this next you know, bit. Make no mistake, Democrats and the president both want stronger border security. However, we sharply disagree with the president about the most effective way to do it. So how do we untangle this mess? Well, there's an obvious solution. Separate the shutdown from arguments over border security. There is bipartisan legislation supported by Democrats and Republicans to reopen government while allowing debate over border security to continue. There is no excuse for hurting millions of Americans over a policy difference. Federal workers are about to miss a paycheck. Some families can't get a mortgage to buy a new home. Farmers and small businesses won't get loans they desperately need. Most presidents have used Oval Office addresses for noble purposes. This president just used the backdrop of the Oval Office to manufacture a crisis, stoke fear, and divert attention from the turmoil in his administration. And again, we're hearing sort of that, you know, parental voice right there. There is no excuse for hurting millions of Americans over a policy difference. We can solve this right now. Uh, most presidents use their, you know, address for noble purposes. All of these things right here go back to that, you know, you've been a bad boy. The Trump's all in the wrong. This is how we're going to fix this. And, and we need to do this right now. Yeah, you can really almost picture Chuck Schumer kind of sitting Trump down and pointing his finger and kind of scolding him and saying, hey, this is this is what you've done wrong and this is how you need to fix it. And it's interesting because it's so clear in Schumer's mind. I don't know if it's clear in everyone else's mind exactly how he puts it together, you know, in that way. So he starts off, he says, you know, Democrats and President Trump both want border security. OK, that's, you know, a premise, right? But they disagree on how to do it. And so he's just kind of saying, well, they both want border security. They disagree on how to do it. So then he says, now this is the start of his cause and effect. How do we untangle this mess? Well, there's an obvious solution, he tells us. Separate the shutdown from, quote, arguments over border security. And so he's using this cause and effect device to be able to give something that seems really unarguable, which is Democrats and President Trump both want border security. And another fact that seems to be unarguable, they disagree on that. So how do we untangle this? There's a simple thing. We're going to separate it. Now, he uses this idea of an argument over border security. And this is where I think he starts to get a little bit persuasive because obviously he has to know that for Donald Trump, this is not just an argument. You know, this is a campaign promise. This is something for him that if he really believes in all of his rhetoric is about life and death, right? It's not just about some rhetorical device. Um, and as uh, some people have said, you know, elections have consequences. And so putting Trump in the White House, hey, he does have a power to be able to say, hey, we're not going to get anything done until you enact our, you know, my agenda, and so it's kind of like Chuck Schumer just dances around all of that, and he instead frames it as this is just an argument that's being had. You know, uh, you have two kind of boys in the class there, and they're having the argument, and you all just get over it, and you're not leaving my office until you do. Um, 
you know, is that really the best way, you know, to do it? And, you know, we talk about, he talks about, you know, most presidents use the Oval Offices for noble purposes. I'd kind of like a fact check on that one. I don't know if that's actually, (laughs) you know, true. Uh, And what is a noble purpose? Who who defines that? Well, right. Schumer defines it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Who, who, who makes something noble or not? I'm sure that a lot of the Republicans um, and a lot of the Trumpers really believe that this is a noble purpose and that they actually are stopping some sort of humanitarian crisis on the border. Um, and I think that, that he's really trying to frame that and spin it just by saying that, that most presidents use Oval op- Office addresses for noble purposes. It puts that that premise and that doubt in people's minds and then he continues to build on that by talking about that manufacturing of a crisis stoking fear and um, diverting from the turmoil of his administration he just sort of like slips all of that extra stuff in um, it's really kind of clever and so now with the last part here um, to the end of it they uh, sort of close out with even more um, uh, of the, the same sort of talking about how you know, we have these differences and how we can easily solve that. Um, but we shouldn't resort to shutting down the government. And let's see how exactly they end this. My fellow Americans, there is no challenge so great that our nation cannot rise to meet it. We can reopen the government and continue to work through disagreements over policy. We can secure our border without an ineffective, expensive wall. And we can welcome legal immigrants and refugees without compromising safety and security. The symbol of America should be the Statue of Liberty, not a 30-foot wall. So our suggestion is a simple one. Mr. President, reopen the government and we can work to resolve our differences over border security, but end this shutdown now. Thank you. And so now Chuck Schumer is really showing us how he would be presidential. He's kind of putting himself in the president's uh, seat or putting himself into that into that way. He's really beginning to become a little bit more thematic here. Okay, so he says, my fellow Americans, and then his pitch rises and he becomes a little bit more triumphant, a little bit more of that upbeat tonality. And he says this phrase, you know, there's no challenge so great that our nation cannot rise to meet it. Well, you know, that seemed very thematic to me. And so I said, okay, that sounds like I've heard that before somewhere. And, you know, as it turns out, I couldn't really find where exactly that language said. But I did find this, you know, I, I did a little searching and, you know, here, here's one. Um, I believe there is no challenge so great or so difficult that it cannot be overcome by America, comma, Britain and the world working together. That was by Gordon Brown, the former UK prime minister, talking about his work with Obama. And there was another one here uh, that was from a book, and it says, you know, and we can see clearly now that there is no challenge so great that it cannot be met, no burden so heavy that it cannot be borne. This is by a book called Seasons in the World, Liturgical Homilies by John Sandel. And so there's this is not a new device, you know, is what I'm saying. And you can hear it there within the language. That type of language is very thematic. It's very using a lot of emphasis. It's building up and it's not specific. So when we're talking about no challenge so great that our nation cannot rise to meet it, well, that's really an ideal. Now, is that actually true? 
that our nation cannot rise to meet it? Well, I don't know if that's actually true. You know, let's let's hope there, you know, that that's not true. Uh, but, you know, there's no challenge currently. But again, there's that thematic ideal in which he's, you know, actually talking about. And so we really hear him getting into his almost Obama-like, you know, very democratic, thematic appeals type of way of talking about, you know, this issue. Right. And we get to the, you know, his sort of theme right there of we can reopen the government and continue to work through the differences in our policy as if this whole situation isn't actually like working through their differences on policy. I think there's an argument to be made that this is sort of the negotiation. This is the argument happening right now. But he wants to separate the two of them because he knows that he can he can at least advance more of his agenda that way by taking away Trump's leverage in the situation. So it's sort of interesting how he sort of plays that language there and uh, and again tries to separate the two the two differences. What's also interesting there is that at the final bit he talks about the symbol of America should be the Statue of Liberty right. and not a 30-foot wall. And and that's really cool because right then like who can listen to that? And not picture the Statue of Liberty and picture a 30-foot wall. Maybe it's stone. Maybe it's barbed wire. Maybe it's these steel slats. <laughs> looks a lot worse than the Statue of Liberty. It looks a lot less appealing there than New York Harbor. And so it's really, uh, it really sort of pits the, it, it, the, the picture of the two sides in really stark light. You've got the Democrats' position with that Statue of Liberty and then Republican with some, you know, terrible barren, you know, wall of Mordor. Right. And he has it right, though. It is a symbol. And that's why that's one of the main reasons, you know, in truth that Democrats are so opposed to this. You know, it's because it is a symbol. It's a symbol of Donald Trump fulfilling his campaign promise. And it's a symbol that means a lot more than just keeping illegal, dangerous people out of the country. It's a symbol that's also talking about keeping out immigrants or people who might be, you know, contributing to the wealth of the country. It's saying, hey, he wants to build a wall to keep out everyone who isn't basically um, like him, you know, who is who isn't exactly, you know, who might be a minority or who might be of a different religious background or from a different country or something like that. He wants to create a wall in order to not allow any of those people in to basically shut down diversity. And so when when they're talking about these symbols of the wall, well, this is why, you know, the wall is such a powerful symbol. And, you know, as I've been listening to this, you know, these debates going back and forth, you know, it's clear this is the main thrust of the argument is that conservatives view the wall or a wall in general completely different than liberals do. Right. For conservatives, a wall is a barrier and conservatives and conservative values are very much about barriers. They're very much about borders of all types, not just between countries. And, uh, you know, having that type of barrier and that type of border is tremendously symbolic. And, you know, just like the people who support us on Patreon know. Right. You know, we have had that episode of symbols. And so this is actually about all of the time that we have uh, available for today. But we do want to tell you that if you're really enjoying the show, make sure to support us on Patreon. Remember, the Patreon page is how we continue to do this, 
how we support it. You do get bonuses just like that episode on symbols, which I just alluded to, which is an amazing resource that you can use to extend your uh, conversation here. And so if you really like the show, please remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at SubliminalPod on Twitter. Visit us on the web at www.subliminallycorrect.com. And we hope that you've enjoyed the show. And until next time, we will see you then. Thank you.